Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second to invite you to join me this year at Restore, a Faith Matters gathering happening October 13th and 14th. Um, it's going to be at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, and it promises to be an exceptional conference. I attended last fall and found it to be a remarkably inspiring, um, hopeful two days of listening to really uh, well-prepared, thoughtful talks, as well as inspiring um, music, and really feeling a deep connection with my other Latter-day Saint brothers and sisters around me in our shared desire to speak to the best in our faith and to speak to one another and find a sense of connection. I'm also going to be one of the people speaking. I'll be speaking a bit about Eros Energy and its connection to spirituality and to the light of Christ. And so I hope to see you all there. All right. Well, Jennifer, we're so excited to have you in the studio. It's been a long time and we have wanted to talk about this topic for years with you. So thank you so much for coming back and doing a, an episode with us. My pleasure. So um, I think I would love to start by hearing you define modesty, because I think in our church, we have a special preoccupation with with sexual modesty in the context of how we dress. And I know yeah. that for you that this topic is so much more broad. And so maybe to frame the entire conversation, it would be helpful for you to just define that for us. Sure. So, I mean, I think in general, we think of modesty as a virtue because we are not flaunting strengths, assets, good fortune. It's a way of just being considerate of other people and in a sense, being humble about the good things you may have in your life. So if you're modest about your wealth or you're modest about, you know, any other positive thing, um, I think sexual modesty is a version of that and might be that you're not flaunting your sexual assets, I suppose. <laughs> you're not, you know, you're not, you're not um, excessive or working a... An, an interaction with your sexuality. That's a, that is a, the focus. And I think that one reason why maybe we focus on modesty. So there is that just idea of being kind of kind and humble and respectful of others. I think also the way that modesty is also defined and focused on is that we do use the issue of private versus public or covering up versus revealing as a way of trying to modulate sexuality or shaping kind of, are you someone who I'm close to or are you a public person? And every culture has different definers of what that is and where those lines are drawn, so to speak. Um, and therefore, there are meanings that those communicate and express based on the cultural ethic around what is an appropriate public uh, form of clothing. So is the public and private, are those cultural lines as a starting point ever problematic by themselves? Like, is it yes. a, no matter how I conservative mean, or liberal they are? I, I would say so. I mean, I think in a sense, the way that I mean, we can talk about all this because I think there's also the issue of how we regulate sexuality and who's responsible for what. And I think that it can be problematic if you're saying, 
well, in fundamentalist Islam, you know, you're basically saying you can't show any of your body because of your sexuality being a problem and it may create feelings in men. And we do a version of that ourselves. And so, I, I mean, I think if the clothing lines, in, I'm going to argue, are constricting your freedom and your ability to live your life and to do things that matter, then we're taking it too far. We're saying that that managing sexuality is so important that you can't actually be a full and whole person. Yeah, I'm curious if you see um, this issue of modest, sexual modesty as something that's totally cultural or if it's or if there's something deeper to it. Like I was mm -hmm. actually doing some research. I don't know if you can call it research. I was doing some Internet yeah. Googling. That's <laughs> yes. it. Exactly. <laughs> well, research. Like we like to call it research. Um, but like it turned it turns out the best estimates place um, Homo sapiens appearing on Earth something like 350,000 years ago. And if Steve Peck's listening to this, sorry, Steve, I know I'm getting these dates kind of wrong, but like clothing appeared something like 100,000 years ago. Yeah. And so you could you could argue that Homo sapiens maybe were wandering around naked essentially yes. for 250,000 years. Yeah. So like, how did how did these how did modesty really emerge to have such a such a cultural importance in in so many different ways and does and does the fact that maybe it is cultural should that influence how we how we think about it yeah so again i'm no yeah, anthropologist yeah. or anything but i i would maybe argue or i would speculate that with the development of the prefrontal cortex and more ability for self awareness and awareness of others and sexuality starting to take on more meaning right and it's not just about copulating and reproduction. It starts to, you become capable of expressing desire and desirability and so on. Well, self-measurement and self-assessment. And so I think that as we became more self-aware and self-preoccupied, then clothing becomes a way of managing shame, managing exposure, managing, you know, just a sense of private and public that's growing with our so social awareness. Yeah. Yeah. And so I do think there's, but I do think there's a sort of biological piece to modesty, given the prefrontal cortex, given the meaning that we can't yeah. help but have. Like dogs are not capable of making love; they can only copulate. Mm. We can bring all this meaning, and therefore we're regulating meaning in part through clothing. Okay. So it feels like that brings us to maybe another framing question. <clears throat> Talk about this idea of a sober driver and the way that we mm. right. teach sexuality in men versus women. Right. So I do think there's a biological piece and then there's a cultural piece that we make it worse and problematic of. <laughs> and so so that is to say, um, I think given how men and women are wired, there is an aspect of meaning with testosterone and the so psychobiological differences between men and women, more where men are in pursuit and women are pursued, right? Women are sought after... The, even women focus on women around sort of what defines attractiveness, desirability, beauty. And um, so there is a kind of natural aspect of men desiring and women being desirable, okay, that has, I think has a biological piece. That doesn't mean that men don't also want to be desired and women don't also desire, but that's sort of a dynamic of sexuality um, that is a that is a kind of foundational piece in this conversation. But I do think culturally we often overburden this issue when we're talking about gender roles and men and women's differences. And a lot of my research and work has been around the way that we have 
really spent a lot of energy in defining what women are in particular. And when you say we there, are you talking about we, church members? Culturally, or? church members, exactly. Okay. Thanks for the clarification. But yes, just even in our church cultural parlance, a lot around women's roles, what women naturally are. Men are less in need of definition, it seems. Women are more in contrast. But that is to say, we talk about men as being agentic and active, and women is more passive and receptive. When I was writing my dissertation, the Young Men's Young Women's Manual had two lessons. Men was uh, choosing an eternal companion. The Young Women's was preparing to become an eternal companion, right? Oh. So it's just the way we talk in terms of agency and non-agency, men act, women are acted upon. So this translates also into, into how we think about sexuality. Men are naturally sexual They in our cultural thinking. Men naturally desire, they assert, they want. Women are desirable. And the most desirable feminine, the way we culturally have talked about it, is to be relatively desireless, selfless, pure, non-sexual, innocent, right? And the kind of cultural fantasy is you'll be innocent and clueless until the day you marry, and then it's going to be a fantastic, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just that sexuality will turn on for the husband only. Um, and that's maybe the way we want it. But we, because we have that cultural meaning, we often then think of of women and girls as the gatekeepers of men's sexuality because they're the sober drivers, right? They're the ones that are the men are just barely keeping a handle on this. They're white knuckling it because they're, you know, and so we're teaching girls that they need to cover up and manage those lines because the men are struggling with their sexuality. And so in that selfless servicing frame, we often overburden women with being the, the ones that are managing men's sexuality. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you're saying, though, that there is some there is some wiring that sort of directionally leans leans that way in the first place. Yes. But maybe culturally we've taken it. We've taken it too far. And that's probably that's probably too simplistic. But w there's also responses that could say, well, it, it, even though there's some wiring, the cult and the culture takes it even further. We should like pull back completely and make this and make this dynamic between desirability and desiring and the way you dress on both sides, like completely, and again, of course, completely equal. Uh -huh. Is is that the response, or should I, we... I think it's the response for some. It's not how I tend to think about it. I mean, I so on the one hand, when I was in young women's, we had makeup nights. Now I loved makeup nights. <laughs> okay, so it's you know men are out learning how to do stuff, tie knots and everything, and and, and I'm just learning how to do eyebrows. But, right, you know. <laughs> Um, and, and so there's a certain amount of that that is, you know, part of that, the, the feminine, you know, we're all a combination of masculine and feminine. And that's a part of it that I think is a perfectly legitimate and valuable part of being human is, you know, understanding desirability and understanding, you know, what, what that's about. But I think that when it, but the, the way that it got problematic for me was the idea that to be desirable was like the definer of who I was, that I needed a man to choose me, that I needed to be pure enough for him, that I was bringing my sexuality to him. Those are much more about defining a self through another person, as opposed to defining and creating a self within yourself. 
And so you can still enjoy desirability, enjoy the feminine if that's, you know, the the direction that you lean and and like, but still forge a solid self. What we do when we talk about roles so much is we are trying to create selves that are validated by the other, right? So I'm I need and you need to be needed. You know, we're looking for a self through being needed by the other person. And and what about the person that's that's hearing this and saying, well, sexuality though is fundamentally relational. Like how does one how does one define a sexual self? Yeah. It is fundamentally relational, but just like, you know, an intimate partnership, a marriage is is fundamentally relational, but one needs a sense of self to share, right? One needs to forge a sense of who am I and what matters to me. A lot of us, when we're immature, we look to a partner to give us our legitimacy. We look to a partner to make our sexuality acceptable. We're hoping somebody else can take away our anxieties and uncertainties. One way we teach women to do that is be needed, be necessary, be a role fulfiller, be the backup, you know, the support staff for his, for the the main show of the husband. And that's often in the desire. The reason why women often want to do that is they want to feel that they're valued. They want to get that sense of self through that role. So it's not, you know, and just as a man wants to feel strong and able by being the strong one, the provider, the one that's making her life good. Um, these aren't terrible places to start. It's where most of us do start, but it's it's time limited because if you need the other person to make you okay, it fundamentally limits how intimate you can be either emotionally or sexually. You can't be at peace with the fact of your sexuality, the fact of your desire, the fact of your capacity for eroticism. You're going to limit how much you know it yourself and certainly how much you let a spouse in on it. And so we need to be able to come to peace with our sexual nature that is a gift to us from God. And to it doesn't mean that you know, you you must be a chooser around that. So you mm-hmm. can receive it and value it and then be choose wisely with it to create the reality that you want in your life. Like that's very important. But even that choosing aspect is really fundamental to that sense of 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 integrating your sexuality and being at peace with it as an individual. So is that how you would teach masculinity and femininity? Like it it feels like we need we we we're, we want these opportunities to celebrate what's different and it feels like maybe that's where lessons might go off the rails like the mm-hmm. the it, yes. the intention was to say we're different and that's that can be great yes. but how do you do that without perpetuating this this sort of accidental objectification of yes. ourselves maybe well right i mean when we're getting too <clears throat> fixated on sort of telling people who to be right there's there's it's suspect that that is that there's kind of a need in it i i need you to stay in a certain place I, and women can do this to men and men can do this to women i need you to to define yourself in a way that makes me comfortable or gives me a role with you um which is different than celebrating the differences in, of masculine and feminine difference and valuing them as truly equal having unique gifts and understanding that all of us have some combination of masculine and feminine. Mm-hmm. I sometimes prefer the yin yang way because it's not so, you know, women are feminine and men are masculine. We're all a combination 
of those capacities. And if you think of Christ, Christ was a combination of what are considered ideal feminine and ideal masculine traits. As we evolve as humans, we tend to develop more. Uh, so we may start out with strong yin qualities, for example, as a child, but start developing more of the yang as a part of becoming a more whole and integrated person. That said, when we become more solid in ourselves, often then two things. One is that we can more deeply embrace who we are. So we may have developed more qualities from the spectrum of characteristics, but don't apologize for the feminine. We're not being feminine because we want people to tell us we're okay. It's because we're being ourselves and we enjoy that part of us. The other thing is that we can have this balance of qualities within our lives and be able to be assertive when we want and be able to be receptive when we need to. But in sexuality, really enjoy what I call polarizing. So in good sex, it's often we're enhancing the feminine, enhancing the masculine. C.S. Lewis talks about this, like that in good sexuality, it's like you, you, you can, he says, first of all, the way we've sort of ruined sex is when we've have manuals that talk about the proper way to be sexual, right? He says, what we really need is this spirit of laughter and joviality and sort of the ability to laugh at ourselves and that we play, we polarize. And so he talks about men can wear a paper crown in sex. And what he means is you're not really the king, but you might like pretending like you're the one. Okay. And the feminine is like, of course, in real life, it would be terrible if, you know, a woman were to act so helpless and so on. But in good sex, you can kind of polarize into these, you know, actor acted upon, desirer, desirable. And it's a part of good sexuality. But we tend to we tend to want to enhance when we're specifically being sexual. We should mention and that I, the PDF of the paper crown is available on Facebook. Oh so. <laughs> yes. Okay, fine. We have to cut it. It's fine. <laughs> I just could not, not not say it. I was just going to add, like it, the the ironic thing to me is that you have to, for that dynamic to be playing out in the bedroom, it makes sense to me that you have to come to that place with some wholeness. Like, Absolutely, you have to come whole. It doesn't that work to be if yeah. it's actually the way you live. Right, right. It's you know I've worked with couples where that's actually going on too much in the marriage. He's too dominant. He's too demanding. She doesn't want to do any of that playing because it's not play, right? This is a way of playing. You know, you're playing yeah. with these identities and roles and, and aspects of self, but it's playful when it's real and then it doesn't feel good. So before we move on from this, the, this sober driver, driver framework, talk about how this is affecting young men or, or men who are yeah. not necessarily in sexual relationships. <clears throat> like, is this problematic for them too? It is. Because I think... Well, two two things at least are problematic about it. One is that I I feel sorry for men, often young men, who feel their sexuality kind of coming on board in adolescence and are getting taught the idea that this is a threat to their goodness and their spirituality, right? And so it is sort of this internal threat. Like it's they're naturally sexual. The culture gives them that, but it could divide them from God. It could mm -hmm. be destructive to them or a woman, right? So men are sort of, women are acted upon, but men are often being taught like that she may not really want to be acted upon. And so, and so that is to say that they fear being destructive with it when, especially when you're socialized into the role of being a protector. And so there can be a deep ambivalence in men. And often men are taught the idea that the sexuality is stronger than they are. Mm. And that's just, 
not the right way to think about it because it means you're in a real ambivalence about sexuality as opposed to, look, this is going to feel unruly sometimes and this is going to feel difficult, but your, your role is to figure out how to handle your sexuality and to create good with your sexuality because you ultimately, as a good lover, as a man, want to be in a place where you value this and can love deeply with your sexuality. But that requires the capacity for breaks and being able to self-regulate and make good choices. But you don't want the idea that it's going to come and get you. You want to think of, I have something I need to kind of master in the true sense. I mean, like not subdue it, but be able to regulate it and create beauty with it. So when you give the idea that you can't handle it and therefore women need to be covering up and they shouldn't be wearing that and you get the idea that you aren't fully responsible and women are partly responsible as opposed to it doesn't matter what a woman is wearing. You still have to handle yourself and to handle your sexuality and your respectfulness of other human beings. That's just your job with the gift of your sexuality. So it's just giving men the idea that they are ultimately responsible and that it's never someone else's job to handle this. That's just important, but it's also important because if they want to have good sex in marriage, they never want to give the idea that their wife is partly responsible for it for many reasons. One is that if you put her into the maternal caretaker frame, she will never be there out of desire. She will be there out of duty, which is a very different energy than one of desire. I've worked with women who you know, dress modestly to help handle the sexuality of the men around them. And then in marriage, maybe their spouse was looking at porn or whatever, but they just didn't, even though they liked sex, they didn't feel free to really surrender to the pleasure in it because they thought they were leaving their post. Like if I'm not standing guard, who is, right? Because he certainly doesn't seem to be. And that's what I've been told is my job. And so there's never a, a real freedom if each doesn't learn to come to peace with their sexuality, learn to make wise choices with their sexuality, and therefore show up and be capable of engaging in a loving sexual interaction in marriage. But you need a certain amount of ease with yourself to be able to be creative and express yourself in that realm. Yeah. Can I, I that. And can I ask one more question? Sure. And this is, before we move on to the sort of maybe bigger part of the conversation, and this is coming from the men's side again. I'm curious if you were, you know, if you were a young men's leader tasked with teaching the law of chastity, because like I imagine when you were getting modesty lessons, we were getting control your thoughts, control your thoughts, control your thoughts, yeah. which I don't think is, I mean, it's getting at something good. Like you yeah. said, mastery is a true, yes. is a true and healthy part yeah. of, of developing one's mature and yeah. uh, mature sexual self. Um, but for me, that kind of spiraled into like shame and scrupulosity. And there's some cer certainly temperamental about me that caused that. I'm not mm -hmm. necessarily blaming yeah. my leaders. But like, how do you how do you teach this really mature point of view that's just not coming naturally yeah. to a young man? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, first of all, making a distinction between feelings and choices and actions, right? So the feelings are just going to come. And, and for some kids, the feelings become the problem. Like just the fact that I'm having that thought or that feeling or whatever you know, means that I'm sinning or I'm not a good kid or whatever. So just understanding that feelings are going to just wash over you all the time. And this is going to feel a little crazy at times, <laughs> you know, that you're just, yeah. you're, you're just trying to move into a grown up body and managing a lot of impulses. And I think I would be giving the message that this isn't, 
this is going to feel unruly at times. And that's okay. And that's normal. And this is, believe it or not, a gift from God, okay? Mm -hmm. That learning how to get a handle on your body and your sexuality will happen with time and is a part of being able to ultimately love and be loved in a committed relationship. And so you're pointing them to the goal. Mm -hmm. And you keep that goal in mind. I mean, and you want your kids to self-define in some sense around that goal, which I could say more about. But, you know, they need to own that's what they want at some level. And then is this choice, is this action leading me closer or farther from that goal of being able to love and be loved in a committed relationship, right? So sure, you're going to, you're going to see images that are very attractive. You're going to see women that are very attractive. You're going to see, you know, you're going to feel feelings at times. That's makes you normal, not abnormal. The question is, what am I going to choose around this? And will that choice bring me closer or farther from the goal of a committed loving relationship? And so it just makes it less shaming. And if you make a misstep, everything's you know terrible about you because that creates more obsession and difficulty with integration, where if you think, okay, there's nothing strange about the fact that that's, of course, that just makes me a human being. But what choice am I going to make around this? It puts you in that driver's seat, which is a very much more powerful position. Yeah. So I I was just at lunch with a good friend who has had a lot of anxiety and, and has made so much progress and just feeling a lot more peace in her life. And something that she said that was so powerful and it feels like such a subtle change, but it, but this, it feels very relevant right now. She was saying, I just decided I'm going to stop giving so much credence to my thoughts. And she kind of like yeah. had a shrug of her shoulders. And I just thought that's yes. the difference. Like it's it so subtle, but it makes all of the difference. It's it the, it's, I had this bad thought. Am I putting all of my energy into resisting that thought or am I just like letting exactly. it float by? And, it's, and I thought it, and it means absolutely nothing about who it's 100% I am. hundred percent true. It yeah. really is. In, in fact, there's research that shows, um, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the researcher who did this. I can't think of it right now, but he was talking about the fact that people that tend to struggle with mental health issues versus those who don't, it's not the, the people that don't struggle with mental health issues are having aberrant thoughts. They're having mm -hmm. antisocial thoughts. They're sometimes thinking things that are not ideal. They're sometimes thinking negative things about themselves, but they don't get hooked on it. They just kind of like, oh, yeah, that's what humans do. They're just more accepting in a way of the human condition. Those that tend to be more scrupulous or anxious can often get caught on the thought. And then that creates more distress within the psyche and the person and yeah, it's and they're just, caught because they're trying so hard to resist to, to resist the thought. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm very familiar with this. I, <laughs> no, yeah. honestly, yeah. like that was my that was my mission experience. But I want to ask one more question on behalf of people, and not everybody's like this, obviously. But on behalf of people who are especially scrupulous, what what is your perspective in terms of like you you kind of painted this picture like make a misstep, you know, that takes you a little bit farther yeah. away, but just yeah. you know, sort of get back on track. What what do you really think in our in our church and in our culture? is the appropriate response to a sexual misstep because here's i think a dynamic that plays out a lot mm -hmm. there there's a sexual misstep of some kind it could be it could be as, in some people's minds as small as a thought it could mm -hmm. be an experience with pornography it could be mm -hmm. going too far with a girlfriend or whatever mm -hmm. um in and then what happens i think many times is it's too shameful to feel like you can talk about that yeah. with your bishop, right. but you feel like God has not forgiven you until you have talked with your bishop. And so mm -hmm. I think some people actually struggle and suffer 
uh, with guilt and shame for years yeah. because of that, like sort of like impossible dynamic. Yeah, I can't talk about this. And in order to to be good with God, I have to talk about it. Yeah. So what, do, in your opinion, I guess, can people move on on their own? I'm just kind of speaking off the cuff. So I don't know if I'm even going to agree with myself after I say this, but <laughs> <laughs> I do that I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> but I mean, I think that too often we, we talk in terms of, you know, the bishop or church leaders in terms of like getting clearance as opposed to pastoral care, advice, help me think through this, right? I'm struggling, I'm suffering, I, you know, in the For the Strength, the new version of it, it was saying like, no matter what's happened, God is always there, right? Cares about you, cares about what you're going through. When I did my dissertation research, what was really striking was how many people felt they had taken missteps and then felt this sense of like, now they couldn't access God, yes. right? Yes, it, it exactly. Was, yes. And so now they were really out in the dark and alone and they'd lost the spirit, but it was really a, a taught idea that they felt like now I can't actually go. And so I really was glad to see that change in the, in the, for the strength of youth manual. But I think even if we talked about bishops and young women's presidents in that same light, they're there to help you think through it. And if we were concerned less with controlling our children and more about facilitating in them that internal reference point around, I want to achieve this goal of being in a loving, committed relationship, for example. These are, this is how I want to be in relationship to my sexuality and I'm struggling. Then you're more in a position to help them think through it. How, why do you think you're getting stuck around that? What do you think might be helpful to you? But it's, it's less, okay, I'm wrong and now I need someone to make me right but more you have someone who's a an advisor someone who's a you know a shepherding you along the way towards what you're trying to create and we really have a theology that's highly creative right it's about mm -hmm. right that we can be in this act of sort of what do we want to become what do we want to create and do with the gifts we've been given and a lot of times we think much more black and white and behavioristic and wrong, wrong and right there's a place for that but it's really not that helpful in in developing into adult sexuality. I love that vision. I want to ask you another kind of delicate question. And I, I like, yeah, I love that vision and that that's how our leaders can sort of nurture this more sexual wholeness. I don't like how that sounds, but that they can mm -hmm. be like a, a player to help us be more empowered and, mm -hmm. and find something that's a, that's a healthier way for us to engage with our own spirituality. But I would, I'd love to hear how you think patriarchy itself often plays out, especially mm. with women yeah. in cultures and in subcultures that are mm. especially conservative. Right. So the when men have had the dominant voice, right, and they become the defining reality, women's sexuality and experience gets defined in reference to men's experience and men's reality. So even like... Um, Kinsey, a Kinsey study. <laughs> Basically, when they were defining the kind of the sexual response cycle, right, of arousal and so on. Well, that's men's sexual response cycle. Mm. Okay. And so then women are like, what's wrong with me? Why do I take so long? As in men are the standard of, you know, 10 minutes to orgasm and women are the aberration because they're 25 minutes to orgasm or whatever. And it's like, wait, how did men become the ones, right? Or like when car, you know, women die in car crashes more often than men do because Seatbelts are def are created for men's bodies, oh, wow. right? So there's a lot of this when we kind of make man as normal and woman as, you know, as different. 
And so a lot of what I'm even teaching in my, my course for women around sexuality is just to like help women understand about their sexuality and how amazing it is and how much capacity women have, because it's always been in reference to men. And, and if you're doing it as a race to the finish, men always win. So when men have been the definers of reality, then it's been easy to say, well, if I'm not supposed to have these sexual thoughts in a conservative patriarchal culture, right? I'm not supposed to have these thoughts and feelings. Therefore, you need to cover up. You need to not do that. And there can even be contempt for women if they're creating feelings in men that they think they shouldn't have. And, you know, and so, for example, when we were, when we traveled with my, my husband and our kids traveled for a little bit of time and we were um, in some Muslim countries like Turkey and, and Morocco and so on. And I was dressed modestly by Utah standards, but immodestly by those country standards. And it was interesting because I would feel that some men would leer because now they had permission to, because I wasn't dressed properly or it was giving the signal that I was a certain kind of woman. They they didn't have to respect me. You know, that that's how it felt, like that they could um, sort of dehumanize, right? And so... That's often the idea that if you don't do what you're supposed to, then I have permission to, uh, you know, I can take advantage of that. And that's obviously a very problematic idea. But what do you do when you're in a culture where that's sort of the air you're breathing? You know, if yeah. you're the woman in that, it, like if I imagine you wanted to cover up, imagine that made you feel like I want to cover up, even though I always that's had wrong. a male chaperone with me. I never went really? out without my yeah. son or my husband. Yeah. So and I, I think that's a lot of the a lot of what comes up for me is that it feels like I'm recognizing there are some problematic things here. And it doesn't feel fair that women are the ones to fix the problems. But it feels like that's who's going to feel the tension if they try to break out of these things that aren't right in the first place, you know, like you can't choose for someone else to not be projecting this judgment. Yeah, that's and so, right. It's, it's so a there, there's a difference between judgment and safety. There's like an okay. issue of safety, um, of course. And, you know, if, if this gets a little bit complicated. So one thing is that I think that cultures have meanings around clothing and you're communicating a meaning based in the culture that you're in. And so you want to be aware at least of what, how that gets read, like wearing a bikini, to a young women to a young men's young women's party in Orem, Utah is going to have very different meaning in terms of what is happening than if you are in Germany. You might even be overdressed in Germany. Okay? <laughs> in a bikini. So that is to say, like there's different meanings around what's considered appropriate and what isn't. And you don't want to, like in any culture, you want to be aware of the meanings of what you're doing and make sure you're communicating what you want to be communicating right within that. Um, on the other hand, there outside of kind of meaning and whether or not you're communicating a meaning that you don't intend to, um, and that might jeopardize your safety. There's the issue of judgment and safety are different things. And so am I dressing in a way that I feel is self-respecting and respectful of others? Am I dressing in a way that um, Shannon Max or Sharon Maxwell, she wrote a book on uh, for adolescent for parents of adolescents around some of these issues. And she talks about the sexuality quotient, 
Like, is the sexuality of how you're dressing appropriate for the task? So wearing a swimming suit to an exam, for example, the sexuality quotient would be off as opposed to a different sexuality quotient when you're going to the beach, right? So just being mindful of what is the meaning context of the clothing and are you functioning in a way that's respectful of yourself and others, which is different than whether or not someone might judge by their on their own standards of whether or not you're dressing the way you ought to. Yeah. yeah. I, I can imagine parents of, you know, kids or teens listening to this and saying, okay, my, and yeah, it's probably daughter, mm -hmm. you know, is not understanding the meaning that she's conveying. And again, it's probably, if, if it's the, you know, the party, the swim party in Orm, Utah, mm -hmm. it's probably not a safety issue. It's a judgment mm -hmm. issue, right? Yep. Um, but my daughter's not understanding the meaning that she's conveying right. when she goes to that party yeah. or to church or whatever. Like, and I want to teach her something yeah. without, shaming her or right. making her feel bad about what she what she's yeah. wearing or who she is. I, you know, I think I would just say there's nothing wrong that you enjoy the, that bikini and you look good in it. And there's nothing wrong with the fact that you like looking good and enjoying it. However, it's kind of a loaded choice in mm -hmm. in this context and so I don't think you should wear it. Right? It's just going to carry more meaning than I think is is suited. I mean, it's just, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. right. This whole conversation was a setup for that moment. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it, there's, it's just go put on a one piece. It's not worth it. It's not, it's not worth it. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of like, why, why do it when and you can just be perfectly happy? Now, if you're hanging out in the backyard with your friends, wear your bikini. Right? Yeah. And as a parent, should we, I mean, should, do you think we should be asking ourselves if we have mixed motives? Like if we've got feelings that are coming up, you know, that's that are, and we're trying to, and we're trying to like put a whole bunch of lipstick on the, oh, that's not a good analogy. <laughs> we're trying to gift wrap this, <laughs> this, uh, this idea in like, um, in JFF language, but it's actually just like something I'm pretty insecure about. Yeah. So I think if you're managing how you're seen as a parent, right. And you are anxious about that. I think that's different. It's different. It, this, these things are a little bit tricky because it's all, it, it kind of depends. Like, so I'm just imagining, I'd be like, we're going to a ward party. Like, just put on, it doesn't matter. It's not worth it. Like, but I don't <laughs> think there's anything wrong with the fact that you like that bikini or you wearing a bikini sometimes, but it's just not now. I would just sort of say, I don't think you should. On the other hand, if I'm thinking, well, if they see that my daughter's wearing a bikini and they're going to think I'm a bad parent, that's just a terrible motive. It's not the right way to do it and to try to get them to make you look like a good parent. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's just one example yeah. of many versions of this. But yeah. yes, uh -huh. that's a very complicated part of the dynamic, though, because I think we all yeah. come with our own baggage and it really flares up again when you have your own kids who are sort of challenging the unhealthiest parts of your own adolescence. You yeah. Know? But I like the idea that that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And it feels like in any context where there's a lot of fear, we're more prone to be very all or nothing. Yeah. And so exactly. I, I like the idea of just practicing articulating that this is not a God issue. This is not like a yeah. God disapproving of your body, but yes. this is, it, but it's loaded. Like that, I think that's a, I think yeah. that's a really, that's a way that works. And there's a lot of authenticity there. And maybe it can work to say, I mean, to just be more honest about our own things that are coming up. Yeah. You know, I yeah. have, I feel really anxious about this. And oh, even talking to your kids. Yeah. Even yeah. talking to your kids. Like I, I've, I, I think, I think I always go into this all or nothing place when I'm feeling worried about something. And so mm -hmm. for me, it looks like I'm not having the conversation because I can't, 
I don't even know how to start because I know I have a lot of emotions and I like the idea of just being more open in general about what we are wrestling with too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is just more loaded for parents in a place like Utah, for example, because Mm -hmm. I grew up in Vermont. I raised my kids in Illinois. There's just, I I don't know. I I just think it's less loaded, so to speak. I just don't think people are paying that much attention. Like just showing up at church at all is good enough, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And I I, I don't think that I really felt much awareness of that. Um, But it's, you know, it's interesting. I remember my daughter saying to me, like when she was nine, she would sometimes just wear tank tops and stuff. And I never, I never thought about that. And she was like, I just used to always feel a little bit like people thought we weren't as good a Mormons because I was wearing that tank. So she was picking up on it more than I was, actually. Wow. And so that was interesting to me. She said that to me like a few years after that. And I was like, oh, gosh, I didn't never (laughs) thought about it. I wanted to ask you about that, though. There there seems to be like there's an age where kids start becoming more aware of Mm -hmm. what's private and what's public. And and for at least some number of years, they're very unaware of that. And like modesty is not on their radar. So is this something that you introduce or that they'll start feeling gradually? You know, when do you start having these conversations? Yeah, a little bit of both. So exactly. It's like they may love running around the house naked when they're three. And you may be completely fine with that in terms of your family's ethics and, and feelings about it. But when Mrs. Smith comes, just to say like, I know running around naked is fun, but for company, it's more polite, right, to put clothes on. So you're teaching that public, private at an early age, which is perfectly fine. It's just helping your child get socialized into managing the public world. Um, They will naturally become more preoccupied with modesty around age six. So they won't want you in the room. They'll want to close the door. And just respecting that private public distinction with them is very good for just even teaching Mm -hmm. them that they, their body deserves respect, their privacy deserves respect. So, um, yeah. And then when they're 13 or so, they may become more aware of, Hey, when I wear this, I get more attention than when I don't wear that or when I, you know, and so then it may take on a different quality or dimension where they're, they may be liking the validation and wanting to dress immodestly because they like feeling desirable. They like being able to command the, the uh, pool party. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. and then is that when you're having these sort of bigger modesty, what modesty really means conversations? Because part of me is like, yeah, I wait, like I'm so happy yeah. for them to have a healthy body yeah. image. And like, right. if I could gift that to my right. 13 year old self, right. I'd be all in. Yeah. So how do you, how do you manage? I, yeah, both? I don't like, think you should be talking about the sexuality of modesty before they're sexual, before they've hit puberty. I, I just don't think it's in their mind. They don't need to take it on. You don't need to sexualize them. You can just be talking about polite and impolite, you know, proper okay. for this context, you know, if there's if there's a need of a conversation at all, right? So, um, and that's all helpful for just understanding boundaries, personal and public. When they move towards sexuality, then there's more an issue of desirability and attraction and managing sexuality and thinking about self-respect and respect for others and what that means in one's culture and for one's choices. So, you know, I I want to talk to my kids about it in terms of that they are not using their strength, so to speak, to exploit another person's desire. Now, mm. now that there's a obviously the female version of that, but just to be fair for a moment, I'll talk about the male version of it, which is like I 
growing up, there was a guy, I'm going to give him a pseudonym. (laughs) (laughs) We'll call him Steve. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) and, uh, And Steve had social, he was attractive. He was like socially very capable and he could make all the girls fall in love with him and he liked doing it. And so he was immodest, in my opinion, in the sense that he had a strength, he had an asset, and he would use it to garner attention and validation. And if somebody sort of gave up, he would give just enough to keep them. And I think that's a way of taking advantage of other Mm -hmm. people because it feels good to you. And so I, if I were to see a son or a daughter doing that in any way, right, I would be talking to them about that. Like, I know that you like getting that attention for its own sake. I know it feels great, right? And it's still not very respectful of other people, even though you can do it, right? And so talking about modesty as in the true sense of the word of, of a kind of humility and dignity that, now this is, now I would never, I would say it feels great to be attractive. It feels great to enjoy your body, to be beautiful, right? There's no, there's nothing wrong with that you like it and that you want to wear the bikini. I get it, right? But it's also how do you show respect for other people? And also it's self-respecting on some level if you feel like your child mm-hmm. is working their sexuality too much to get a kind of cheap attention that it, it's a way of sort of limiting, I mean, kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like sort of flaunting and it's, I think, sort of works against their dignity. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, on the oh. other, sorry, on the yeah. other hand, yeah, I think we're more versed in being able to talk about objectification in that sense. Yeah. That, you know, you are making yourself an object for this person or, or vice versa. But it feels like sometimes we sort of do this in the opposite way, mm-hmm. especially in the church. And maybe this is more common where you know, the culture is very dense, mm. but, but it talk about how we might make an object of someone for being especially modest or, yeah, you know, right. checking every box. Modest and- is hottest, that kind of mm. stuff. <laughs> Forgot about that, yes. Jim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that's still objectification. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like yeah. this is just, that's just the other side of the coin, but it's yeah. the exact same problem. It's the same idea of like, this is how you're going to be desirable. It, and so your goal is to have someone else tell you you're sufficient. And so the way you're mm-hmm. going to do it is to be pure and to be modest and to do all these things. And and you need to earn that in someone else's eyes. And that's just a, that's just a problematic path. It's an easy one. It's the easiest way to tempt people into the right behavior is tell them that they're going to earn you know favor in the eyes of others by doing something. But it is a way of keeping the reference point outside of themselves Mm. and distracting from the question of who they are, who they desire to be, what their impact is on others and what impact their choices have on themselves. But how do you, how do you explain that? Because to a kid who is maybe, you know, leans perfectionistic, that conversation I'm afraid would feel like, so, you know, it's okay if your shorts as a 15 year old are not touching your knees, you know, it feels like you're sort of talking them out of standards and which is totally not the intention, but I feel like to the ears of a, of a less mature adult, you know, like yeah. they're, they're with a developing brain, what they're going to hear is like, you're telling me to do this in a lukewarm way. And like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to do it all the way. So how well, do you, I, I think how what do you I would be talking that? to my child about if that's what they were doing is more that that I see them imagining that there are rules that they can obey and follow that are going to give them safety and give them Mm -hmm. dignity. 
they're trying to check all the boxes to find a security Mm -hmm. that's not really there. So I would just be teaching them to be kind of self-aware, right? It's, It's a guideline to wear shorts like that. It's a good guideline, no problem. But the safety isn't in the clothing line, right? It's it's figuring out what is actually right for the purpose and what is gives you yeah. know what is self-respecting and respectful of others. It feels like the new for the strength of youth pamphlet is going to make that so much easier because yes. you don't have literal yeah. a literal list. Yes, that's right. To judge each other that's right. and to judge yourself. Right, it it's much like- more the spirit of the law yes. is there. Yeah. It's great. It's it's really a big step forward. And for kids to even to be reading that a lot is just kind of pulling their mind into a new way of thinking about it that's asking them to discern more, asking them to what is the spirit of the law here? What's actually, you know, healthy and good? What is actually drawing me closer to Christ? What's actually living in line with what I believe? Um, That's just it's the right muscle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I um. So we've talked about several situations and I just want to draw a little bit of a finer point on something we've been mm-hmm. definitely on a little bit. Um, but th- these situations where we're uh, making certain decisions in order to sort of manage what other pe- people think. So mm-hmm. whether it's dressing in a, in a certain way to uh, avoid a sexual gaze or dressing a certain way to gain a sexual gaze mm-hmm. or dre- or dress, have, you know, um, <laughs> having your kids dress a certain way to avoid judgment mm-hmm. from sister so and so. If you zoom out a little bit as just a therapist, is it ever healthy to make decisions um, in order to manage what other people are thinking, even outside yeah. of the context. Of I would modesty. say yes, but that might just expose my underdevelopment. I'm not sure. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I, I think it's a little bit around public and private, I think, and sort of going along with the culture on some level, unless, you know, to just, in some ways, to manage how much of yourself you need to explain. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just can I, mm. how much am I going to let people in on, on who I am? And there's a certain amount of going along that does that. Um, but except for when it really is eroding your dignity or really eroding that you feel that you're betraying something in yourself to go along with it, right? So there's a lot of things that we go along with, not because it's what we would choose or how we would do it, but we're just going along with the group as a way of belonging to the group, as a way mm-hmm. of fitting in. And there's a cer- certain amount of that, that that's just normal and healthy, in my opinion, you know? You get together for a family reunion. Everybody's doing a little bit of that if it's going well, Mm. right? It's when you feel like you're giving up so much that you're actually falsely presenting yourself, that you're you're actually trying to keep an image alive because you can't handle someone knowing who you actually are. Then there's Mm. more of a self-betrayal in that management, right? Mm. So there's sort of like a broad area in of behavior in which we can be true to ourselves. It's mm-hmm. not like a single narrow path. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as we're acting within that broad area, we can, well, to be a bit circular, circular, remain true to ourselves. Yeah. And it's stepping outside of that. Yeah. That could be problematic. Yes, exactly. It's 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 when you feel like you're living deceptively and you feel yeah. like it's out of your own shame or your own inability to handle invalidation. I would say then then there's something to renegotiate in yeah. terms of how much of yourself you let others in on. Humans like to control each other. Humans like everybody to be the same because it makes us feel more comfortable. Um, and there is a place where, you, you know, here's the guardrails. Here are the guidelines. Here's what we do. We have them in every culture, every group. You know, this is how you do school. This is how you do, you know, anything. 
Um, so there's nothing wrong with that, but ideally you're not saying that that's the end point. That's mm. the beginning point. And so, you know, it's a slothful servant that's commanded in all things. We have to ultimately, okay, internalize those frameworks and those understandings, but then start thinking for ourselves and discerning for ourselves. And what's the spirit of this principle? And how does that apply to me and my situation? And so, yeah, we, we have to be careful that we don't make an idol of, of these <laughs> kinds of ideas that are starting points, not end points. I love that way of thinking of it. I'm, I would, and maybe this is, this is harder to talk about, but it feels to me like garments can be a natural extension of that very black and white guardrail yes. way of thinking. Like it sort of feels like, okay, as a youth, here's your guardrails and this is right and wrong. And then you're going to make covenants. And I think you can look at, at, at wearing garments in the exact, with that exact same framework, this very, like someone has, someone has laid this all out yeah. for you and exactly what it means and exactly how you need to engage with this and exactly how to make it meaningful. And so right. how do you talk, can you talk about, do you feel like you can sure. talk about that? Like, how do you do, how do you approach garments with this healthier, with a healthier mindset? So it doesn't feel so much like a, a control thing as it right. does like a, an actual meaningful expression of your covenants yeah. with God. So I'm working on a book and I, in the book, I'll be talking about you know, I'm, I'm sort of talking about our development and how we relate to sexuality and faith. And I'm just putting in three stages to keep it simple. But, you know, when we're in the early stages, we, we think very much in black and white and boundaries and the rules, and we're looking for a sense of safety. And so a lot of people relate to garments from that frame, because that's the moral frame they operate in. Like, you know, that religious objects are literally sacred. That is, you know, they they have literal meaning and there's not symbolic meaning and they literally keep them safer. And so for some, that's the world that, that they, that it feels right and true for them. I think as people move from that kind of obedience frame and black and white, this is how I belong and this is how I'm safe frame into more self-definition, right? Into this kind of, what does it mean for me? Well, then garments are not about okay, I must wear them because otherwise I'll be less safe mm -hmm. or socially I'll be rejected. Mm -hmm. That's that's kind of what stage two is, is this is how I demonstrate that I belong and that others will see me as acceptable and worthy. In stage three, then it's more self-defining. Well, what what does the garment represent for me and what is my relationship to it? And how do I think about, you know, f you know I've I've talked to people who feel like it's oppressive and it feels like it's like, you know, there's just this judgment on their body and it feels very disruptive. I've talked to other people who feel like, no, this is like feeling like I'm wrapped in this sense of mm -hmm. God's love and a sense of what my commitments are in my heart and I love my garments. And so it really depends on, you know, if it's this authority frame versus a personal self-defining frame, it can have a very different mm -hmm. feel in terms of what it means for you. But uh, yeah. So, so how can you go, if you if you find you're kind of in this fear base mentality or it feels oppressive how how do you reorient that like if you want it to be meaningful is there how do you start over yeah i mean i i think you have to first think in terms of choice not in mm -hmm. terms of i have to and we talk in terms of you have to you know and this is how you do it and this is why you do it and if you don't do it you know people are going to judge you and and so we do use them more as a form of kind of social control 
I mean, I think. And, and that's not unusual in the earlier stages, like what makes you inside versus outside. We do it with the word of wisdom too. It's not really what's the spirit of that. It's more a way of regulating, are you an insider or an outsider? And so, so there's a place for that. Like, and I understand it, but I think if you're going to really move into a different relationship to it, then choice is fundamental to it. And what meaning do I give to the garment? And to my covenants? And how do I feel that that will reinforce what matters to me around the promises I've made? Yeah. So it's just, it's more creative. It's more self-defining. It's not about regulating everybody else. And it does mean inherently tolerating that other people will have thoughts and feelings about that. <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. know if it's Brene, is it Brene Brown that says you're not free to say yes unless you're free to say no? That's right. Yeah. And it feels like that. Like if yes. you, if the answer has to be yes, then like there's not actual there's freedom not, there. Mm -hmm. So you're going to feel controlled. That, that's yes. a really interesting yeah. answer. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we've given a lot of, we've had a lot of conversation about the problematic things, which I think we have to do. You know, this is our world and it feels like our part of our responsibility to engage with the problems that come up naturally in a, in a mm -hmm. sexually conservative mm -hmm. culture, you know, but, but maybe to start wrapping up, could you talk about what, what are the gifts of sexual conservatism. Yeah. You know, are there gifts? Sure. There are, there are, what, for yeah. sure. I mean, so one thing, let me just talk about the gift of modesty, okay? Because mm. yes. I, I think that, you know, there would be nothing worse than the whole world being a nude beach. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I have a personal testimony of this. I showed up on one in Europe once unknowingly, and I was like bombarded with how unsexy it really was. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. All like, right. It really is the opposite of erotic. It I mean, is. It's the literally opposite no of erotic. And, and what's erotic is is mystery. And the idea of something is special, that it's not just all for show. So I had a um, somebody I worked with who was doing some work in the Middle East, and he was working alongside a Palestinian woman who had her hair covered the whole time that they were working together. And as they were working together, week after week, they were growing closer and closer. And, you know, they came from very different worlds culturally and so on, but they were really building a deeper friendship and attraction. And he said, you know, he's seen a lot of women's hair. You know what I'm saying? Like he's, not, okay. he's like an American. Yeah, just he's like an American, American right. This has never been the symbol of eroticism for him. But her hair was covered the whole time as a function of her religious practice. Well, then one day after work, she, knowing he was looking, removed her hair covering. And he said it was the most erotic moment. He couldn't believe how, because the meaning. The meaning is I'm letting you in on something personal. And it was the covering that made it personal. And it was the removing that made it special. And so, you know, we we want this simple-minded idea that modesty is just about sexual oppression and repression and that we are, you know, basically have so much shame. That's why we're covering up. And I just think that's a very simple-minded idea. I think it's a way of regulating public and private we can certainly do it in ways that are shame-inducing and making people responsible for things they're not responsible for. But it can also be a way of cherishing your body and your sexuality genuinely and making a distinction between, you know, what is yours and what is, belongs to others and what is special to you and what you share with a special other versus what you share with the general public. That's also very different than having shame about your desirability or your attractiveness or your sexuality. You can feel fantastic about all of it and still dress in ways that are not 
flaunting in any way or really making your sexuality public. It's, it, you know, you're not, you're not, how to say it, denying it or ashamed of it. You can dress attractively and show that you're a sexual being, but still not be working your sexuality in any way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my yeah. gosh, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much. Yeah, I yeah. I think we're about, yeah, just I wonder if, just to close, could you yeah. paint maybe just what's a positive vision of modesty that maybe we as a faith and, and faith culture can embrace over the next decade or two? Yeah, well, I think it has to be in the context of really embracing our theology that embraces the body and sexuality mm. as this loving gift from a loving God, right? Mm. And that we are that we might have joy. And we really have this ability if through our development, right? So speaking to just the value of sexual conservatism is that you can't actually create beauty in a marriage if you don't have breaks. Like you have to, you, it's not just a free for all. Those aren't the happy people. Breaks, B-R-A-K-E, like pressing yes, on the brake. Yes, yeah. exactly. If you don't, exactly. If you being able to to manage and regulate your sexuality to create good with it. So there's value in learning how to respond to your impulses wisely and learning how to regulate the body towards the aim of being able to enjoy the sensuality of the body and to create goodness with it. And so if we, you know, as I'm writing about in the book I'm working on, if we can use our theology to understand our goal better, right, and what we're pointing towards, which is really this ability to have deeper embodied joy, even the spirituality of the of, of the body, right? That then we can speak about it more honestly mm -hmm. as an actual form of cherishing and valuing of the body, right? When we're all terrified of sex and we're, we're you know, doing lip service of how great sex is, <laughs> but nobody <laughs> believes it, right? Uh, that doesn't really work. But if you actually have your own testimony of what a beautiful thing sexuality can be, right? Then you're more naturally able to kind of offer a form of, of of valuing the body and the dignity of the body while not shaming desirability or sexuality or the beauty of the body. It's just a way of cherishing it. Um, and so I think we could speak more in that frame and and believe ourselves as we talk that way. <laughs> Love it. This Thank awesome you so work. much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.